All right, Matthew chapter 26. Um, we're going to read verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to jump down to verses 14 through 16. And let me show you why we're going to be doing that. Matthew 26, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast lest there be an uproar among the people. Jump down to verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to take verses 1 through 25 in this chapter, and we're going to just take little segments at a time and pull some nuggets out. But we're going to take a look at verses 1 through 5 and 14 through 16, because they kind of tie together. All right. We see in these verses now that Jesus is moving from teaching about his return to the earth to preparing his disciples for his coming death and resurrection. In other words, why he came the first time. If you remember in chapter 24 and 25, he's been dealing with the sign of the end of the age and his coming. He describes the tribulation period, the birth pains. And then, of course, he talks about being ready for his return, not trying to worry about figuring out the day of the hour, but make sure you're doing what you're supposed to be doing until then. But when we get to chapter 26, he turns to his disciples and look closely at how he words it. He says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Well, I'm pretty sure the disciples knew that after two days the Passover was going to be there. I mean, that was something that was very prominent in the minds of the, of the Jews, and they knew when Passover was. But he also says, you know that the Son of Man is going to be delivered up to be crucified. Go back to Matthew chapter 16. You're going to see that Jesus has already been preparing them for this. And at least three times, Matthew 16, look at verses 21 through 23. Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So he had already told them, we go to Jerusalem every now and then for the feasts. And, but for the most part, we've been doing our ministry in Galilee. But this next time we go to Jerusalem, we're going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed. Peter, of course, says, I'm not going to let that happen to you. Jump over to chapter 17. Look at verses 22 and 23. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So here's a second time. Chapter 16, chapter 17. Jump over to chapter 20. Look at verses 17 through 19. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he'll be raised on the third day. So when Jesus turns to them in chapter 26 and says, you know that in two days is the Passover and the Son of Man is going to be delivered up to be crucified. Did they know it or did they not know it? They knew it, but they didn't know it. They knew it in the sense that they had heard it, but they didn't know it because it hadn't sunk in. If you remember, if you've ever studied this whole story of Jesus' death and his resurrection, they didn't even fully understand about his resurrection, even though he's told them three times, I'm going to be raised until after he'd risen from the dead and when the Spirit gives them understanding. I just want to encourage you in the same way. It encourages me. 
I've been a Christian for a long, long time and been walking with the Lord for a long time and have been studying his word for many years. And have you ever been reading something you've read forever and all of a sudden you go, oh, now I get it. Don't beat yourself up if you don't understand, even though you read it. Some people say, well, I read it. I don't understand it. It's all right. His spirit will give you understanding. He will give you insight. But sometimes it's not until the proper time that he actually opens your eyes to it. Study it. Put it in your heart. Have it there so that he can bring it to your remembrance when he wants to. But don't beat yourself up if you read over a passage and go, I just don't get it. Even his disciples who walked with him heard him from his own mouth say three times, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. I'm going to rise from the dead three days later. They still didn't get it. That's okay. But when it was time, it sunk in. And I just want to encourage you with that as well. But notice now, look at verses four and five of chapter 26. Notice that the religious leaders have their plans not only to have Jesus put to death, but they also have planned when. Look at verse four. And they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, they've already decided that they're going to kill him. But they've decided it's not going to happen during the feast. Let's wait until after the Passover feast. That way there won't be an uproar among the people. By the way, when did it happen? Before the feast. It actually happened during the feast. Yeah, it happened during the feast. Jesus, remember, he's already said in chapter one or chapter 26, verses one and two, I'm in two days of the Passover and the Son of Man is going to be delivered up to be crucified. What I want you to see tonight, and I'm going to kind of lay this out for you as we go through these verses, that even though man is planning, God's still in control. Even though man's planning wickedness, God's still in control. Don't lose sight of the fact that individuals will be held accountable for the decisions and the choices they make. But I want you to know scripturally that the Bible says that even though man plans his ways, God is the one who orchestrates how everything plays out. Let me just take you to a couple of verses that talk about that. Go to Proverbs chapter 16. You're going to see this thread throughout the whole study of the sovereignty of God, even though it looks like man's in control. In Proverbs chapter 16, look at verse 9. It says, the heart of the man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Isn't that interesting? The heart of the man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Jump over to chapter 19 of Proverbs. Look at verse 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And if you go back to Proverbs chapter 16, look at verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Have you ever noticed that whenever we see in the Bible, they cast lots to find out whether or not they're supposed to do this or that or who did something? And who? Have you ever noticed that every time they cast lots, it fell perfectly to who it was? Remember when they, if you go back when they're trying to figure out why they lost in the defeat at Ai, well, as you know, Achan and his family had taken some of the treasured, treasured things that God had said, when you go to Jericho, don't take any of the spoils. That first city's all to be given to God. Well, Achan and his family kept some of the spoils. And as they go to the next battle in Ai, should have been a simple one, they lost. And they're all like, what happened? And God says, well, it's because you got somebody in the camp that has stolen. Well, who is it? They start casting lots. And it fell to this tribe. And then it fell to this family. And then it fell to Achan and his family. Isn't that interesting? They cast lots to find out who it was, and as they threw the dice, said, it's you, and it was dead on. 
Have you ever noticed when they were wondering why there was a storm at the time of Jonah? And they all cast lots to figure out who it was. Who did it fall to? Jonah. Listen to me very carefully. I want to encourage you with something in a couple of ways. One, are there wicked people in the world right now that are planning wicked things? We don't have to get into conspiracy theories and all that kind of mess, but we can definitely agree that there are people in the globe who are planning maybe the demise of America, uh, demise of Christianity, or whatever. There are people in the globe that are planning wickedness. God is still in control. And even though they're planning it and saying, we're going to kill him, but we're not going to do it on, during Passover, God says, I'm actually in control and it's going to happen during Passover. You're still doing it, and you're going to be held accountable for it, but it's actually fulfilling all of my plans, and it's going to happen when I say so. Now, let me also encourage you um, along the same way. And I'll deal with it later on in the study, and I'll show you a little bit, little bit later on. But if God can take wicked people's plans and make them work out to accomplish his purposes, can he not do the same thing for those of us who want to serve him? I want to encourage you that. We'll deal with that more later on in our study. But don't just say, well, God's going to control even though the wicked people are planning their things. His stuff's going to get done. That's good. And that's true. And that's an encouragement to me in these days. At the same time, though, I don't want to just look at it that way. If God can take wicked people's plans against God's will and orchestrate them to accomplish his purposes, if I'm willing to surrender myself to his will and to do good, he will take that as well and make it happen. If we're doing his plan. If we're doing his plan. He'll make it work out. Well, we're going to come back to that one. Very good. We're actually coming back to that exact verse in just a little bit. But let's go to, uh, to, uh, um, back to Matthew 26 and look at verses 14 through 16 again. So the, the religious leaders have gathered together in the palace of the high priest, Caiaphas, and they've plotted to, to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. And then it just so happens that one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, he went to the chief priest and he said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Isn't that interesting how they said, OK, we've decided we're going to kill him and we're going to do it secretly so that people don't all find out. Let's wait until after the, the Passover feast. And just as they made up their mind that they wanted to do this, it just so happens that one of the disciples show up and says, hey, what do you give me if I actually help you come up with a secret way to have a little private meeting and have you hand me hand him over to you. Let me say something to you folks, and I'm just going to tell you straight up. If your heart is set to do evil, Satan will give you lots of opportunity. He'll give you lots of opportunity. Go to James chapter 1. Let me show you what I mean by that. These guys didn't even have to go look for a way to do it. It just ended up on their doorstep. James chapter 1, look at verses 13 through 15. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. All of us have within us, even though we're saved, that still struggle with the flesh that wants to sin. And if you say you don't, you're lying, the Bible says. They may say he doesn't have sin. 
You're, you're lying in the truth, not in you. That's why if we confess our sin, he's faithful to just and forgive us all our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank God we're forgiven from the penalty of our sin, but that desire to sin is still there. That's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7, the things I want to do, I don't. Things I don't want to do, I do. Who will save me from this body of death? But let me just tell you this. If your heart starts to lean toward wanting to do something, opportunities will arise. Satan will put lots of opportunities in your plan. That's why you need to daily surrender your flesh to the Lord and say, Lord, you created me a clean heart. Lord, give me a heart that's for you. And that way, those opportunities won't be as strong and won't be coming as much. But I wonder if Judas knew of the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 11. Go back to Zechariah chapter 11. As he goes and he says, hey, what do you give me if I hand him over to you? And they said what? How much did they pay him? 30, 30 pieces of what? Silver. Uh, look at Zechariah chapter 11. Look at verses 1 through 14. Zechariah 11 verse 1. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail... Of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Thus says, said the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord. I have become rich and their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. So I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one I named Favor and the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. In one month I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter and the, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. So God has given Zechariah a, a prophecy to act out. He says, I, I, I've got a flock that's doomed to be slaughtered. But I want you to go and be their shepherd. And he had one staff named Favor and another one called Union, which was bringing Israel together, Judah and Israel, the, two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. But they didn't want him to be the shepherd over them. So he said, all right, I'm not going to be your shepherd. Pay me what you think I'm worth, what, I've, what I'm worth. And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And so they pay him 30 pieces of silver. And then God tells Zechariah, take that money and throw it to the potter. So he does. Very interesting. Go with me to Exodus chapter 21. Look at verse 32. It says, If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. 
So if someone lost their slave because an animal killed it or gored it, what was the price of a slave? <clears throat> 30 pieces of silver. Isn't that interesting? The price that they paid for the death of Jesus was the price of a slave. And it also lined up exactly with the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 11 that this shepherd that wanted to shepherd this flock, but he, they didn't want him to be their shepherd. Okay, you're doomed to slaughter. They paid 30 pieces of silver for him. And then God tells Zechariah, you take that money and throw it to the house of the potter. Go to Matthew chapter 27. Again, I wonder if the Pharisees and the religious leaders knew this prophecy in Zechariah. I wonder if Judas knew this prophecy in Zechariah. Look at verses 3 through 10. <clears throat> then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it's not lawful to put this money into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and they brought, bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom the price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now, you say, wait a minute. We just read it in Zechariah. Here it says Jeremiah. Let me help you out with that real quick. Remember how Jesus described the, the Old Testament into three parts? He said everything written in the law and the prophets and the Psalms will be fulfilled. In the Jewish mindset, the Old Testament was broken into three sections. You had the law, which is the first five books of the Bible. You had the prophets and you had the writings like Psalms and Proverbs and so on. So whenever they referred to the, the, the prophets, they would a lot of times just call the prophets Jeremiah because in the segments of their Old Testament, Jeremiah was the first one of all the prophets. So when it says this is written in Jeremiah, it's just talking about the prophets section of the Old Testament. We know it now was actually written in Zechariah because it's almost word for word. So when Judas goes and says, hey, um, what do you give me if I hand him over to you by stealth and set up a way that we can do this where nobody really sees it, maybe at night? I don't know where his schedule is and how, we'll, we'll set something up. And they said, we'll pay you 30 pieces of silver. I wonder if Judas even knew that he was fulfilling prophecy like that. And of course, the Pharisees, when Judas changes his mind, and we'll deal with that more when we get to chapter 27, because there's been a debate over the years. Did Judas get forgiven? Judas changed his mind. Is Judas in heaven now? And I'm just going to tell you straight up, and I'll show you this from Scripture. Judas is not in heaven. There's a difference between being sorry for what you did and truly being repentant and turning to Jesus. If he truly turned in faith, he would have run to Jesus and said, forgive me. You know, instead he just went and killed himself. And actually, the scripture teaches very clearly that Judas went where he belonged. And Jesus himself said, I've lost none except the one doomed to destruction. So as much as we want Judas to be forgiven, he never asked for forgiveness. He never sought repentance. He just was sorry for what he did. And the Bible says Judas is in hell. But when he went and he threw the money back and he said, look, I, I, I betrayed innocent blood. Take this money back. The Pharisees were like, oh, this is blood money. We can't put that in the temple. So they said, let's just go buy this potter's field. Again, I wonder, these guys who knew the Old Testament, did they know they were fulfilling Scripture? Again, 
Everything's happening just like God said it would. Even though all these people are plotting evil, everything's under control. And like I said earlier, just as God's ways will be accomplished even though man is sinful, so too will he establish our works if we seek to do good. Go back to Proverbs 16. And you were right. Look at Chris pointed it out. Proverbs 16, look at verse 3. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at verses 16 and 17. I love this. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. Paul says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. I'm going to ask you two questions. Even though wickedness is out there and man is planning evil, is God able to control everything they do to make it accomplish his purposes in his time? Is God able to take everything that you do if your heart's in the right place and make it accomplish his purposes and his plan at his time? Isn't it interesting how it's easier though for us to, un to believe that he'll take wickedness and accomplish it for his purposes and harder for us to really believe that God would actually use stuff that we did and make it accomplish his purpose? we got to trust in that. Part of our problem is, is we want to see it right now. But you remember, the Old Testament prophets were writing all these prophecies, hundreds, sometimes thousands of years before they ever came to be. And the scripture even says that they longed and searched intently as they were looking as to what the Spirit of Christ in them was saying. But they were told it's not going to happen in your lifetime. But now as they look back, because they're outside of time and they can see what's going on, they can see how God's been using everything they did. They didn't see it always in their lifetime. And I want to encourage you with that as well. If you're honestly desiring to be used of the Lord and you want to plant seed and you want to go encourage people and point people to Jesus, we always go out and we say, hey, would you like to trust Christ as your Savior? And they're like, nah, oh, I'm not very good at it. I guess I better not do it anymore. And we have no idea how much, you never know what a word here or a word there, how God's using whatever he's doing. And he's always at work. Uh, we, Becky and I have been living for 20 years in this house in Indian Harbor Beach. And next door to us are a couple of guys who are homosexual. And we love them and we've been reaching out to them and we've been sharing the gospel with them. And we, we, they know we love them. They know who we are. We know, they know what we believe and all that. But We've been saying, Lord, we want them to get saved, but we've been next door for 20 years and we haven't seen anything happening. I mean, when I went through cancer, the guy, one of the guys next door actually had the exact same kind of cancer as me. He was one month ahead of me in all the schedules. We were both set cancer free, but then his came back. He had to go through the whole bone marrow transplant and all that kind of stuff. We've had opportunity to talk to him about the Lord and everything, and they act like they're Christians. They, they say, oh, they believe in God, they pray. But it's obvious because of their lifestyle, they really don't know him. And we're like, Lord, I want to be used. We've been 20 years. I want to be used. And then God encouraged me one day as one of the men on my board for my ministry, his sister died really by surprise. He's only 50 something years old and she died. And as we went to her memorial service, our neighbors showed up. How did you know her? They have this business where they do remodeling and they design things and she had been buying stuff and she had been witnessing to them herself for years. And God said, Jim, you're not the only person I use in their life. 
I didn't give you the task of getting these guys saved. And if you don't do it, it ain't going to happen. Look, believe that God will establish whatever it is that you do. Just as like he's taking the, the wickedness of man and orchestrating it all according to his plan in his time, in his way. He can do the same with us. Just be willing to just go out and be used and trust that God's going to take a word here, a word there, an action there, and he'll work it all out. And when someone comes to faith, one day you're going to see how God says, you said this back in 1970, and it took root in 1983. Well done. Go to Matthew 26. Let's go back to verses 6 through 13. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, before we get into this study of this section, I got to point out something. Luke's account of the woman who poured ointment on Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair is not the same story as here. In Mark and Matthew and John... You'll see the, this account. Luke has one that sounds really, really the same, but it's not. Go with me to Luke chapter 7. And I want you to see that even though it sounds so similar, <clears throat> the context is not the same. The setting is not quite the same. And the timing of when this happens in Jesus' ministry is not the same. This other one in Matthew and in Mark and John all are happening in the last days right before the cross. This is earlier in his ministry in Luke 7 verses 36 through 50. In Luke 7, verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering him said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered the man, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled uh, the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this even, who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, it looks like this is one of the first times Jesus meets this woman, correct? And she's a sinner, most likely a prostitute. And she's wiping his feet and she anoints his feet. Go back to Mark. I'm sorry, not Mark. Matthew's account. And you'll notice that the setting is different. 
And as you're going to see in John, actually, I'll tell you what, put a bookmark here in Matthew. Let's go to John's account in John chapter 12. You're going to see that, that actually the woman that does what's recorded here in Matthew and Mark and John in the last days of Jesus' life on the earth is actually someone he knows. John chapter 12, look at verses 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Again, very similar, but not the same story. And who does John tell us the woman is? It's Mary. Remember Mary and Martha and Lazarus? He's known them for years. They've been in his house. He raised Lazarus from the dead all prior to this. The woman in Luke 7 is not the same one. So just keep that in your minds. But according to John's account, who was upset with the waste of money? Judas. Go back to Matthew again, though, and look at chapter 26, verses 6 through 13, and see who Matthew says was upset about the waste of money. Verse 6, Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up with him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Who, who, who was upset? This one? All the disciples. Yeah, I, I, I want to deal with something with you guys tonight for a second. And I, I want you to hear my heart. I want you to hear. I hope you hear I love you. And I hope you don't get upset with me. But I need to say some things to you. We all like the disciples, have a tendency to righteously jump to the wrong conclusion. When Satan came and tempted Adam and Eve, what did, what did he offer them? You get to be like who? God. You get to decide right and wrong, good and evil. And even though we've been forgiven of our sins and we're going to heaven, we still got that problem within us, don't we? We still want to be God. We still want to call right and wrong, good and evil. And Christians have a tendency to see other Christians doing things, and we have a tendency to go, that's not right. And we're righteously indignant. Let me say this to you from a pastor's standpoint. For years, being in pastor of a church and dealing with situations in a church and knowing things that the rest of the church doesn't know, because we know deeper secrets, if you will. I have seen many a time where individuals in the church righteously indignant. I can't believe they did such and so. And I can't say anything because I know the rest of the story. They only know part of the story. And those people that were righteously indignant were wrong. Let me give you an example. You can see somebody show up at church and they're wearing a ball cap. And I've had people say, they should not be wearing a ball cap when they're in here. They should treat God with reverence. They're righteously indignant. But I also know that that individual just had their water shut off. And they couldn't take a shower Sunday morning, but they still came 
but they put a ball cap on to cover the fact that their hair wasn't washed. They were righteously indignant, but they were wrong. I'm going to also say something to you that I want you to hear, and I want the Spirit of God to speak to you. I believe that all of us, most of the time, our first righteously indignant reactions, like the disciples, not just Judas, I think most of our righteously indignant reactions, our first ones, are wrong. I see that all through the scriptures. Jesus, we've already seen in Matthew 16, tells his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be handed over to the Pharisees and they're going to kill me. Peter, righteously indignant. Lord, I won't let that happen. Was he right or wrong? He was wrong. Go to Luke chapter 9. Look at verses 49 and 50. <clears throat> John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. <clears throat> but Jesus said to him, Don't stop him, for the one who's not against you is for you. We saw someone, and he wasn't our denomination. And those people in those denominations, they're, they're teaching falsehood. They're not teaching the truth. Actually, I'm still getting stuff done even through that denomination. It's one of the things that's opened my eyes over the years. Is I've seen churches that are super, super conservative and fundamental. And I see people come to faith. I see other churches that are super liberal and make me uncomfortable. But you know what? People are still getting saved. You know, I had this couple that came to a church that I was pastor of one time. And, and uh, it's obvious they were believers. Man, they knew the Lord. They loved the Lord. And I said, when did you come to faith? And they named the name of a Catholic church where they had been. And they got saved in the Catholic church. After a while, they wanted to go to a different church. But these folks got saved at a Catholic church. Everybody was like, no, God doesn't do that. They're teaching falsehood. There's a lot of things that I'm not comfortable with that a lot of denominations are teaching. Even some of my denominations teach stuff that I don't love. But you know what? God says... You want to be in charge and you want to decide what's right and what's wrong. And we have a tendency to do that. We're doing it on Facebook. We're doing it on all the social media. Everybody's got an opinion on something. I'm going to ask you to prayerfully consider the fact that your first reaction probably is wrong. Humble yourself enough. You're going to see that later tonight in our story. Humble yourself enough to know and to be willing to say, my first reaction probably isn't the right one. Go to... Luke chapter 9, look at the next verses, 51 through 56. Do you think God can save people in spite of ourselves? Yeah, He can. He can save people despite us. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. And He sent messengers ahead of Him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for Him. But the people did not receive Him because His face was set toward Jerusalem. And when His disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And he turned and rebuked James and John, and they went to another village. As he's going to Jerusalem, he sent some guys ahead to Samaritan to get us some housing set up for their trip through. They're like, now, if he's going to Jerusalem, we don't want anything to be part of that. And they wouldn't let him pass through. James and John said, let's judge him. God says, vengeance is mine. I'll deal with, right, with dealing with repentance and, and, and judgment and all that stuff. It's not your call. You guys are the ones who are in the wrong. But Lord, look what they did. That should be dealt with. If we don't deal with it. No. 
I'll deal with it. And I'll deal with it in my time and in my way. Now, I'm not saying that we should never point out sin. The Bible actually talks about in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, if you see a brother caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, restore them how? Righteously indignant? Gently. But first, you better examine yourself, he said. You better check your own heart and your own motives why you're wanting to deal with this. And actually, all through the scriptures, the Bible says a lot. Judge not, just you be judged. For the measure you judge, it'll be poured to you. Actually, there should be less of us trying to point out everybody else's faults and more of us saying, Lord, show me. Lord, show me. And if there is something that he's wanting you to say, you'll know because over time, the Spirit of God will show you and he'll show you how to gently and when and how to deal with it. These people were righteously indignant about this waste of money, not just Judas, but all the disciples. And they were wrong. Go back to Matthew 26 and look at verses 17 through 25. <clears throat> now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. Now, when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better that that man that he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now, I love how Matthew's account shows us that the disciples asked Jesus where he would have them prepare the Passover meal. Look again at verse 17. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? <clears throat> Go to Luke's account, though. Luke's account brings out something which I think is kind of cool. Luke 22, starting in verse 7. Luke 22, verse 7, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now we see from Luke's account, when they asked him, where would you have us prepare it? Was that the first encounter of this episode? No. Jesus had said to Peter and John, go make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Now, if Jesus says to you, Jesus, face to face, says, go make preparations for us to eat the Passover, what would you do? You'd go, wouldn't you? I mean, Jesus says, go, make preparations for us to eat the Passover. But Peter and John have been with him now for three years, and they actually pass a test. They failed a bunch of them. But they've started to realize that when God says, do something, he's not wanting them to go do it. He's been teaching them all along, I want you to walk with me and do what I ask you to do, but let me do it through you. That's why the feeding of the 5,000 was the reteaching of the previous lesson. When he sent them out, he said, don't bring any money, don't bring your food, don't bring a change of clothes. In other words, you just go do what I ask you to do, but I'll be the one doing it through you. Of course, they come back and report all that they had done. 
And Jesus says, tell you what, let's go get a, get a little rest area. And uh, they went across the lake and the people all saw him. And Jesus, they come to him and they say, uh, you know, it's late in the day. Send him away saying, go get something to eat. And what does Jesus say? You feed him. Again, you go make preparations. You go feed him. And again, they tried to. Man, they pulled their calculators out. Eight months wages won't be enough to give everyone a bite. We can't do it. And what does he do? He reteaches the lesson. He says, what do we got? Well, we got five loaves and two fish from this little boy. All right. Tell everybody to go sit down. And he does a miracle where all those people are fed and there's 12 basketfuls left over. They still didn't get it. And he puts them in the lake. He says, go across the lake. They can't even get across the lake. He walks on the water to display his power again. It's not you, it's me. And he keeps reteaching it, for feeding of the 4,000 again. A few days later, there are 4,000 people. And Jesus said, they've been with us three days. Let's send them away. We don't want to send them away hungry, so let's feed them before we send them away. And the disciples say, how can we do that? Over and over, he's been teaching them, it's not you, it's me. So Jesus turns to Peter and John and he says, go make preparations for us to eat the Passover. And Peter and John don't move. They said, where would you have us go make preparations? Folks, let me say something to you. Jim Johnson included. Many of us Christians have missed out on so much that God had for us because we set out to go work for him and we didn't wait for the rest of the instructions and how he had it in mind. Go to Jeremiah chapter 10. You know, the story told us as you're turning to Jeremiah 10, that they went to this upper room. Jesus actually, when they said, where did you have us prepare it? He didn't say, oh, wherever. What did he say? He said, go into this city. When you see this man carrying a jar of water, which is a rare thing, follow that guy. Whatever house he goes into, you, here's what you say to the master. And he's going to lead you to an upper room and you're going to find it all what? Fully furnished. Isn't that awesome? It's already all been prepared. He had it all worked out. They, instead of them trying to come up with a caterer and we need to find a room and how many people and how many chairs and... Lord, what do you got in mind? And when churches and individuals understand that God's given us something to do, but then we say, but how would you have us do it this time? We all of a sudden see God do things in ways we never dreamed. Look at verse 21. For the shepherds are stupid and do not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, they have not prospered and all their flock is scattered. Look at verse 23. I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Some of your translations might not say stupid in verse 21. What do your translations say? The shepherds are what? If you've got King James, it says brutish. You says stupid. You've got ESV. ESV, yeah. Some of them say senseless. Others say dull-hearted. I like stupid. But why are they stupid? They don't inquire of the Lord. Do you realize most of our churches today really don't pray as to what God would have us do in this situation? Do you realize most of our churches today are governed by their constitution and their bylaws? It's time to ordain deacons. Here's how we always do it. Even though the scripture doesn't say specifically how, we've come up with how it's always to be done. It's this time of year, we're going to do vacation Bible school, just like we did it last year. And we actually don't check with the Lord. If you've ever read my book, and if not, ask me and I'll bring some for you next week if you'd like one, because I give them away. But in my book, The Principles of a God-Centered Church, the first principle is the fact that God never duplicates a method. You'll, you, I challenge you to show me anywhere in the Bible where God did the exact same thing the exact same way more than once. Walls of Jericho, was that a successful military campaign? Name another city they ever walked around. Strike the rock. Next time, speak to the rock. Every time, God changed the method so that we would inquire of him. What would you have us do? And then he would teach them to follow him and not put their faith in a method. Churches today are fighting with each other over methods. 
We're fighting over evangelism methods, worship methods, and what kind, how to do music, and how to do this and that and the other. And scripturally, God keeps changing his methods so that we'll inquire of him. You see that in David becoming king in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 17. David becomes the king of Israel. And the Philistines hear about this, and they think, hey, he's young. He hasn't had a chance to muster his troops. And they gather in the valley of Rephaim. David inquires of the Lord, and he says, do you want me to go find him? And God says, go straight in. I'll give you victory. And they do. Wipe him out. The next verse, verse 22, the Philistines gathered yet again in the valley of Rephaim. Same people, same valley, exact same situation. And David does a non, well, a very unnormal thing compared to us today. He doesn't assume that how God did it last time is how God's going to do it this time. And he said, what would you have me do this time? And God says, if you know the story, don't go straight in. Go around behind them. When you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the trees, that means I'm gone ahead of you. And the same people, same valley, same situation, and the method God chose each time was different. And I just want to encourage you with the fact that the Bible actually says that we're to daily say, Lord, how would you have us do this? You know, he's going to have you deal with Susie different than he has you deal with, with Joni. He's going to have you deal different with Bob than, than, than Roger. He wants you to pray and say, Lord, what would you have us do in this situation? Go to Isaiah chapter 50. And I found over the years that I'm when I'm willing to be patient and say, OK, Lord, I know you've called me to do this, but what do you have in mind? How would you have us do it? He walks you right through the fact that he already had the whole plan and you see things you never would have dreamed. Look at verses 10 and 11 of Isaiah 50. When it talks about being in darkness, by the way, it doesn't mean sin. It means not knowing what to do. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Now behold, all of you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, go ahead, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you've kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. He says, you're in the dark, you don't know what to do? Rely on God. Ask him, seek him. Oh, you want to come up with your own flashlight? You want to come up with your own torch? Go ahead, come up with your own plan. Here's what you're going to get from me. No help. Do you also notice back in our passage here in Matthew 26 that the disciples have no idea when he says one of you is going to betray me? They have no idea who it is. Now, there's a couple of things here I want you to see. I love the fact that they're not righteously indignant and they haven't already come up in their minds with who it is. A lot of us, when Jesus said one of you is going to betray me, we would have looked around the room and said, yeah, <laughs> we all would have gone. Jeremy, right? We would all have thought that, right? If all the people in our room, we all would have thought it's Jeremy, right? What do you think, Jerry? Is that you? Would it be you? Maybe. <laughs> I love that attitude. That's actually very good. Did you notice that the disciples say, is it me? I love that. They were humble enough to say, I don't think it's me, but I could, have, I could be the one. Isn't that what David prayed? He said, Lord, search me. Psalm 139, search me and know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and show me. Paul said, I don't examine myself. I, if I did, I wouldn't give myself a fair assessment. I don't know anything against myself. But in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, but just because I think that I'm okay, it doesn't mean I'm acquitted. It's the Lord who knows the heart. And just like you don't know your own heart, you don't know everybody else's heart. And I love how the disciples all said, it could be, your, your answer was awesome. Because I was trying to mess with you, and you answered it perfect. Could be. But what about Judas. Did he know that it was him when he said to Jesus, is it me? Yeah. 
He had to have known it was him. He's already gone and worked out the deal. He's already got 30 pieces of silver in his pocket at this time. Why do you think then he's saying to Jesus, is it me? He's wanting to know if Jesus knows. He knows. Does Jesus know that it's me? Now, go to John chapter 13. There's something here in this story that I'd never seen before. And I've seen it, but I have never seen it at this level. And I've been waiting all night to show it to you. John chapter 13, verses 21 through 30. Now, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So this is John. So that disciple, John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him and Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Let this sink in for a minute. Jesus, at the beginning of our chapters, turns to his disciples and says, you know that in two days is the Passover and the Son of Man is going to be delivered up to be crucified. The Pharisees and the religious leaders all gathered together in Caiaphas' palace to plot to kill him. But they said, not going to happen during the, fair, during the feast. We don't want an uproar, so let's wait until after the feast. Judas, though, shows up on their door and says, I know how to work this out, that we can do this in clandestinely. What would you give me? And they pay him the 30 pieces of silver to fulfill the prophecy. Who was the one who told Judas when to go have the meeting? Jesus did. I've never seen that. Jesus is the one during the Passover meal who turns to Judas and says, go now. I know you've been planning this. I know you've been plotting this, but I'm in control of when it happens. Go now. And Judas heads off and goes and grabs the Pharisees and they all come that night to arrest Jesus. Again. Who is the one who said exactly when it was supposed to happen? Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 26 real quick. We're going to just run through it real fast. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. I'm going to show you how God's in control of the whole thing. In Matthew 26 verses 1 and 2. When they finished all these things, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming up and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Look at now verse 18. He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Jump over to verses 47 through 54. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and he said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him and Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant. He was righteously indignant, by the way. 
and the high, of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? All through we see as chaotic, as crazy as it seems, all the wickedness going on behind the scenes. And Jesus is in control. They're going to be given up to be crucified at this time. My time is at hand. You can't stop what's going to be fulfilled in the scripture. Here's what I want to do tonight. I'm going to close tonight by reading to you Psalm 37. Let's go to Psalm 37. Are we in some wild and crazy and evil days right now? Yeah. Listen to Psalm 37, the whole chapter. Just like in Jesus' time on the earth at this time, so too will all the scriptures about the purpose and the timing of Jesus' return be fulfilled. Listen to what Psalm 37 says. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act as we've been looking at tonight. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it only tends to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he'll not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draws the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the, that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked for the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine they have abundance, but when the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows, but doesn't pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. Those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever, for the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and the tongue, his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart, and his steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power, or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord, and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. 
Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord, and he is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Folks, I can't promise you that 2021 will be better than 2020. I've been hearing a lot of people say, can't wait till 2020 is over because, man, it's been a bad year. 2021's got to be better. I can't promise you that. But I can promise you this, that God's in control. And if you just will humble yourself and walk with him, don't make it your job to determine what everybody else ought to be doing, but you just walk with him and love him and let him show you what he has you do. And you walk with him on a daily basis, say, Lord, how would you use me today? You will see him establish your righteousness. You will have peace in the midst of the trouble. And like Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but in me you'll have peace. Take heart. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. So I want to encourage you. We're going to meet next week one more time before the year's over. But I just want to encourage you. Don't be looking at the wickedness. Don't be looking at the evil. Don't be looking at all that stuff. Put your eyes back on Jesus. He's in control. I love you. Thanks for coming.